you don't have the book, that's okay. The, 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 what I'm going to do mainly covers what's in the book, although today is a little different. Um, it's still an introduction. It's just not the introduction that's in the book, at least not exactly. But uh, let me go ahead and pray, and then I'll, I'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Father, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for uh, what for many of us is a holiday weekend. Thank you for days off and days to rest. Uh, Help us right now to understand that faith is true and reasonable. Um, Christ really is the answer truly. And that we can have assurance of this thing through your Holy Spirit. And uh, make our time together now to be a blessing and helpful to all of us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start. Can you hear me? And Okay, I'm going to start by reading a poem. Uh, the introduction today is going to be about cultural context. What, why, why do we even need... What, oh, this is also called... On, it's an apologetics class. We call it reasonable faith, but it's apologetics. Why do we even need... Apologetics, other than, you know, the Bible says do it. But why else should we do that? And part of the reason is because of the cultural context we live in now sort of demands it more than it has in a long time, I think. Necessary that we be assured that Christian faith is true and reasonable. This is a poem by Matthew Arnold, who was a British poet, and a professor of literature and a cultural analyst. And if you hear the ocean in the background, you're not crazy. It's, it's my Bluetooth speaker over there. Thought I'd have a little bit of a little bit of ambiance here. This is a poem called Dover Beach. And uh, this is probably wasn't written on his honeymoon. But it was written about him reflecting, in some sense, from his honeymoon. And it was at Dover Beach in England. And this is what he writes. He says, The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand glimmering and vast out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet is the night air. Only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling. At their return up the high strand, begin and cease, and then again begin with tremulous cadence, slow, and bring the eternal note of sadness in. So, of course, he's reflecting on things because that's what we all do on our honeymoons. I'm going to skip the next stanza, just for those of you who might know this poem or know Matthew Arnold, because then he transitions using that stanza to, to a reflection on the culture around us. Because, again, that's what we all do on our honeymoons. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long-withdrawing roar. 
retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain, and we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. When I first read this poem, I, I thought he was reflecting on World War I, ignorant armors clashing by night. And just so you know, the British waxed very lyric, lyr, lyrical about World War I and its, and its brutality and horror. But it wasn't. This poem was written over 150 years ago. Matthew Arnold was an Anglican, but he wasn't quite an Orthodox Anglican anymore. And although he is lamenting that the sea of faith, which once was at full, has now receded like a tide. It's, it's not like this anymore. It's more like this. Well, I hit the button twice, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So the sea of faith is reti- re- retreated. And this is, it's not prophetic, but it's almost prescient. He is already talking about what is now called post-Christian Europe. And America is not too far behind, although we're not quite as post-Christian as Europe. And he is lamenting that the sea of faith, the fullness of Christendom during the Middle Ages, to be born European was to be born in the Catholic Church. And the church and spirituality and the idea of God and his holy angels in heaven permeated every aspect of life. And Arnold is somewhat lamenting this, and he doesn't want, though, to go back to, you know, the, the old, old story. He doesn't really want to go back to orthodoxy. Arnold himself was more like a, uh, a late romanticist writer and had affinities with the transcendentalist in America. If you know uh, Henry David Thoreau or Ralph Waldo Emerson, the idea that nature itself is the cathedral in which we can experience spirituality and there's a sense of transcendence just permeating the world. It really wasn't a desire to get back to biblical orthodoxy or even Anglican orthodoxy or anything like that. He's just wants a sense of spirituality to permeate the culture, but the sea of faith has departed. So he wrote this 150 years ago, and about 100 years afterward, a, another social critic and late romanticist, John Lennon, wrote this, imagine there is no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. So he's imagining a hundred years later, what Matthew Arnold lamented. So a hundred and fifty years ago, Matthew Arnold was already lamenting what is now called the secularization of the age. We live in a secular society, just so you know, if you hadn't noticed. And this is of late been most carefully analyzed by a Canadian philosopher and 
somewhat liberal Roman Catholic uh, philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. This is, this is probably the most uh, studied and uh, looked at book about secularity and the nature of what's happened to religion in the Western world in over a century. So Charles Taylor does a really good job of analysis. I'm not sure about his prescriptions about what to do about it. But he said there, there's not one kind of secularity, there's three. And I think one of these is really what we're experiencing and, and we need to deal with it if we're going to understand that our faith is reasonable. So first of all, fewer people actually do believe in God and organized religion. As I used to tell my students about atheism, all the cool kids are doing it. And so you'll find, particularly in college, when kids are exploring, et cetera, et cetera, more of them are going to opt for atheism. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. Uh, and there are more and more people who don't follow any organized religions. They're called the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns. They have no religious affiliation. They sometimes might say they're spiritual but not religious. And then secularity, too, is the presence and influence of religions and religious belief have diminished greatly in government, public institutions. This is, this is where the culture wars hit the fan. Um, this is where we have the arguments about uh, marriage and sexuality and politics and all sorts of things like that, which I'm not really going to get into because, I mean, I'll probably say enough that annoys you that I don't need to really start in with that. Uh, although I'll have to say a little bit, but I think you know as well as I do that, that we might not have started as a Christian country, not officially, but the Judeo-Christian tradition is greatly influenced both the formation and the growth of this country. Well, a, a lot of that has been cast aside and is continuing to be cast aside. It may seem like otherwise sometimes simply because there are islands of, of religiosity. But even the Bible Belt that you know is, used to be this great big buckle like this, almost like the wrestling buckle you get, and now it's shrunk down uh, so that the belt, the Bible belt is only now a small buckle uh, and in pockets. Uh, the government, the national institutions, if you go to the Smithsonian institutions, which are great, I recommend it, but uh, they are going to reinforce and actually promote not any form of religion, but, but secularity. Secularity has now become the de facto civil religion. Um, secularity three, which I think most concerned us, is the conditions of religious and personal belief have altered. When I read this, I thought, well, he's reading my mind. Uh, naive or innocent belief has become impossible, and alternatives to traditional religious belief have proliferated. Um, I was raised Episcopalian, and uh, I, I heard the gospel, and I became an ac I was an acolyte. Uh, you know, I, I I did all this. I went to confirmation class. I was officially confirmed 
but not really confirmed. Um, my confirmation, my, my real, what I would call my real confirmation, didn't occur until 10 years after that confirmation, and that wasn't in a church, that was in the living room on a Saturday night of a, of a Pentecostal street preacher, and therein is a really long story which I'm not going to go into right now. But in between those times, I sort of drifted off into uh, postmodern American religiosity. I really got involved in the New Age. Uh, you heard a guru out in New Mexico, read New Age books, did yoga, did chanting, um, and experienced this kind of proliferation of religious beliefs, which at the time was really influenced by Eastern religion, by Hinduism and Buddhism. But then I had a conversion experience my freshman year in college, and, and it was profound, life-changing, and true. But what happened, this was on a Saturday night, and when I got back to my college dorm on a, on a Monday morning, it was almost like a little voice in the back of my head saying, well, yes, but is that true? So yes, I had this conversion experience, and yes, I, I believed in Christ for my salvation, but because the culture around us no longer reinforces our Christianity, we can no longer rely on it as, as a bulwark, as a foundation, as a support, or as a framework. So you know as well as I do, you can't send your kids to elementary school and expect, not even in Kentucky, that they're going to reinforce your teaching at home, unless you send them to a Christian school or you homeschool them. They might not undermine it, depending on where you are, but they might. Uh, it was over 10 years ago, it was when the transgender thing was just a blip on the radar, and I was mentioning this to students in my class because I taught a class on worldviews, and I mentioned that, and I think it was Massachusetts at the time, was passing a law in some school district where even in elementary school, kids who identified as transgender could use the bathroom of the gender they identified as. This was a, probably more like 15 years ago. And I mentioned that in the context of the discussion of sexuality and the culture. And the next day I had a student come out, well, my dad doesn't believe you. I said, well, okay, here, here's the website. I'm sorry, this is true, we don't like it. And well, we all know where that has gone. So we've gone from that to, uh, did you know that drag queen story time is a thing now? Now that snuck up on me, I admit. I like to think I'm in tune with the culture. When I first read about drag queen story time, I thought, well, this is an interesting and rare anomaly. No, by the time you heard about it, it was already proliferating. Now it's true, I don't know of one at a public library, and these were held at public libraries. So that's just in the area of sexuality that you know the culture is changing, and I don't want to dwell on that. But we live in a culture where the, where the de facto default is secularity, that there no religion really tells us the truth that the secular viewpoint is actually neutral, objective, and true. And so even the culture, I mean, let alone Satan, just so you know, I, I do believe there is a personal Satan, 
and he can use means just as God can use means. And one of the means he uses can be a godless culture, and we'll, we'll get to that. But the culture, uh, entertainment, politics, everything is, is going to be saying in the back of your head, well, yes, but is that true? And if that sounds familiar, well, it is. It goes back to Genesis 3 and, and the lie of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say that? And so there are pockets of innocent and naive belief, but they really are pockets. Um, my, my wife and I went to his, her, her brother's funeral a while ago, and he lived in Mount Airy. Does anybody know what's significant about That's Mayberry. Okay, and maybe in, we went to a little Baptist church literally up on a mountain somewhere, and they're lovely, wonderful people. And so maybe in some pockets there's this sense of that the preacher said it, I believe it, and that's all I need. The Bible, I read it. But for a lot of us now, we do not have a culture that is going to support or reinforce our Christian belief, so we need to do that ourselves more and more. All right. What I really want to talk about is not the manifestations. You, you will experience them. You know them. You will see them on, on entertainment. We're all going to see, uh, consume popular culture, by the way. The key is discernment. So I'm not really going to disparage popular culture. Well, I am in one instance, just coming up. But it might be popular culture you've never heard of. So Charles Taylor has this idea called the imminent frame. And, and this is the, the existing, what, what Peter Berger called the social construction of reality, which he might have regretted that because what he meant was the construction of social reality. It has now come to mean, just, just in case you had thought about that, social construction of reality basically means is what, whatever's true is what we say is true. But that's not what Peter Berger meant. Peter Berger meant something quite real and quite true, is that the culture around you frames and channels the way that you think. And even, it doesn't really limit the possibilities of what you, I mean, we, everybody can still think out, the bo- out of the box, but it becomes more and more difficult if the culture around you is saying one, you're thinking one thing and the culture around you is saying something quite another. Paul spoke about this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he said, don't be conformed by this age. It's usually translated this world. And what he meant is don't be, don't be changed, don't let your thinking be changed by the patterns and the thought processes and the ideas in the culture around you. But he said, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And actually, I'll come back to that. So Charles Taylor had this very useful idea to describe the mindset of the secular age. He called it the imminent frame. So it's, it's a mindset along with the culture and institutions that support and promote it, which are many and varied, and a lot of them are governmental institutions. Uh, this mindset, it denies transcendent values and reality. There is no God no angels, no supernatural reality. There's actually nothing beyond imminent life. That's this worldly, this now life. You live, you die, and, and then stuff happens in between. And, and that's it, the, the imminent plane. He called it the imminent frame. So 
the culture has constructed, and it's not totally monolithic. I mean, there are exceptions and there are pockets. The, the culture has constructed this frame within which we live and move and have our being and which channels our thought processes and our thinking about reality. And you have to come to terms with that. And I really think this is getting to be more like like what Paul and the early Christians had to experience. Not in all the particulars, uh, although I think we're as, uh, as a culture becoming just as idolatrous as the early Roman Empire. We don't worship statues. And you, you, you are in effect almost to the point of having to, metaphorically speaking, burn a pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord. Uh, if, if you don't want to use the right pronouns or affirm same-sex marriage or uh, apparently now be a communist, then, then you will be ostracized. It's, it's not completely true yet. Um, so there is no God, no transcendent world. Human flourishing requires no reference to a transcendent reality. All that, all that matters is what happens here and now. And so if you hear the gospel, the culture is going to say, yeah, but that's not true. You know, that hope you have for uh, the resurrected life, that's not true. Uh, you pray to God, that's not true. Um, and it's going to become louder as we go along. So the imminent frame, it, now this is me talking, not Charles Taylor, although I'm not, I think he would agree. It is pervasive, dominating, and monolithic in itself. It has not yet taken over the whole culture. It's more monolithic in Europe and Canada. Not yet completely controlling, but those invested in this mindset do seek such control through politicizing every aspect of life and enforcing ideological conformity. Has anybody heard of Christopher Hitchens? He was a very famous atheist. He wrote a book called God, I, I bet I've only read brief excerpts of it, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And I'm, I'm not going to write the book, but I think a good alternative book would be The State is Not Great, How Politics Poisons Everything. And, and all you have to do is look around. I don't care what your politics are. You have to admit I've been voting since I was 18, and I'll just, you know, I just that was a while ago. And this is the most surreal state of politics I have ever experienced in my lifetime, and as far as I can tell, my parents' lifetime and their parents' lifetime. Politics has not only gotten nasty, it's just gotten weird. And, and one of the reasons is, is there are people who want to politicize everything, literally everything. And they want to be even more controlling than, the, than Latin Christendom during the Middle Ages ever was. They want to control every aspect of life so that you conform to this idea of the imminent frame, that your ideology reflects what they want you to. And I could name names, but I won't who they are, but you, know, you can fill in the blanks. Well, this is nothing new, as, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. So, among other things, as well as being one of the most indigestible books of the Bible, I mean, seriously, I remember first coming across Ecclesiastes, which begins, 
and also has it in the middle and toward the ending. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. What, what do you get for all your work? Well, nothing. You die. So there is lots of things to say about Ecclesiastes that I won't say right now. But one thing it said, that under the sun, there's this phrase repeated 29 times. And it's clear that what he means is life without reference to any life beyond this one. Under the sun is what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. Now he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't support the imminent frame, Charles Taylor. He's just saying this is the condition around us and I think he's correct. Now I think his, his, his diagnosis is correct. I don't think his prescription is actually effective, just so you know. Um, so fixation on immediate reality is not new. Solomon wrote of it nearly 3,000 years ago um, in referring to approach to life without reference to transcendent reality. So is everybody with me on this, is what we're talking about? Okay, this one worked. If you know this song, you have dated yourself. Okay, doesn't that take us all back? That's one of the... The guy that wrote this, Kerry Liveron of Kansas, actually did become a Christian, but he wrote this before he began... Well, I think that's how the sequence went. So, uh, if, if you didn't know already, Dust in the Wind is just Ecclesiastes put to music. Um, better than the bird song which Pete Seeger wrote. To everything there is a season and a, a turn, turn, turn. Which is a great song, but... They actually misinterpret that. Just so, you know. <laughs> so life under the sun, he concludes, is meaningless. If that's all there is, all our work and striving, achievement and accomplishment, pleasure, pain, joy, justice, everything is vain, empty, futile, or absurd. A chasing after the wind. The looming reason, why? Well, because of death. Without reference to God or an afterlife, death levels everything to dust and ashes. Thirty centuries later, it seems we have forgotten. And, and the cultural framework might have changed, but reality doesn't. Again, as, as I used to repeat often to, to adolescents, because they need to know this, that reality will not bend to suit your wishes. You know, God is God, reality is reality, and what you do is, is discover it, what that is and then align yourself accordingly. This is not to say you can't think out of the box and be creative, but um, we'll talk about something that's an utter delusion, which, which, well, I'll just say artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is nothing but an oxymoron. Uh, despite this, uh, now that I have to go back to, uh, despite the influence in the imminent uh, frame and the institutionalized denial of transcendent reality, the longing for meaning still leads people to seek transcendence or some higher reality in their life. You, you can't, like I say, you can't change reality. And one of the reasons you have to enforce, and that's becoming more increasing, this idea of, of no, there is nothing beyond this life, is because people don't really believe it. 
and they want to believe something else. So this surfaces in many ways. Uh, different religions and spiritualities, uh, popular culture, and artificial intelligence and what's called transhumanism. Uh, anybody know who Ray Kurzweil is? So he's Mr. Transhumanist. He now works for Google. So the people at Google who know we're here, uh, well, no, they don't know I'm here because I don't have my phone on. Uh, uh, he works for them. Uh, Mr. Kurtzwill is the man who came up with the idea of the singularity. This is the point in the future where he believes that human beings and technology will meld. And he literally believes. I'm not, this is not a metaphor for him or a lot of other people some of whom work in the tech companies that, you know, we all are in the habit of using. That we will be able to download our consciousness onto computers, and then, of course, we will have advanced robots. I know this sounds like a plot for uh, the episode of The Big Bang Theory, and it was. But there are people who believe this. We will achieve effective immortality because our... Consciousness will be downloaded onto indestructible uh, mainframes within indestructible robot bodies. So somebody asked uh, Ray Kurzweil in that documentary, which is on the left-hand side, does God exist? And I would say not yet. And I made his ideas into, I would, I would use the term popular movie loosely because I think it crashed at the box office. <laughs> Uh, transcendence with Johnny Depp, and he actually did download his consciousness on the computer, and you can imagine the, the hideous consequences of that, and that's what happened. Well, this is a materialist conceit, the idea that your mind, your consciousness, your thoughts, your awareness, all your longings, all your desires can be reduced to patterns of electrons, because that's all downloading means, is an arrangement of electrons on a computer chip. There is... I'm, just have to take my word for it now. Maybe we'll get into it a little. There is absolutely no evidence that that is true. Um, not Darwinianism, not transhumanism, not artificial intelligence, which is an oxymoron, can come up with a legitimate explanation or any good arguments for the belief that your mind is actually just matter. So I'll have to leave that at that right now. But there are some positive aspects of the culture. I'm dating myself again. If you know this song, uh, well, you were there. Well, you know what they say about the 60s. If you can remember them, you weren't there. But this is the 80s. Uh, let's see if I can get this brief clip to work. Okay, in the interest of time, um, great song. Um, I could just play my playlist at this point if you want to. Uh, there are positive things in, in uh, culture, and um, I admit I'm not up with the latest tunes. Uh, I can't even remember her name now, Billy Eisler. She's a new thing. Somebody mentioned her in my class. I'm, I'm teaching part-time at Portland Christian School, and I thought they said Billy Idol. 
So there are similarities, actually. Uh, but um, even though I'm not up with popular music, I, I am sure because the, the, the truth just will out, as Shakespeare said. I'm sure there is popular music now which still reflects this longing for higher love, for, for transcendence. Uh, I just don't know what it is. Uh, my playlist pretty much stops in the late 90s, just so you know. There's nothing much, nothing much after that. Um, Coldplay, that's, you know, I could say U2, but they were the 80s. But. So, so it's, a, it's a secular age, but, and I'll, I'll just have to end here. Uh, but it's also a godless, godless age. I think Paul would agree with everything that was said the parts I picked out of Charles Taylor, but he would, he would add this, that in the last days he said we're, we're going to live in a godless age. Well, the last days started when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, just so you know. Biblically speaking, we have been in the last days since then. So these are characteristics uh, that happen cyclically, but as we approach Jesus' second coming, they will increase in vehemence. So we have narcissism. Now he said uh, uh, people will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Well, that's just narcissism by another name. And I'm not going to even try and get... I, I understand the internet here is iffy. If you go to ember.com and then on the search engine just type in narcissism, they have a four-part uh, series on narcissism in contemporary culture based on Christopher Lash's book, The Culture of Narcissism. Um, it's wonderful, I know, because I wrote it myself. But anyway, I, it's, it's pretty good, and it'd just be a good place to look at it. Or you could just read Christopher Lash's book, The Culture of Narcissism. Greed, hedonism, sexual immorality, and depravity, uh, hostility, anger, rage, deceitfulness, delusion, and suppression of the truth, false spirituality, false doctrine, and teaching. Hmm. Now, before we get too self-righteous about this, I mean, I think we could all say, you know what, I resemble those remarks. Uh, that was a joke. Okay. As good as they get. Um, and, and, and I think, again, we can say, they actually did a study, because I, I studied it. I studied the study. Uh, uh, they had an index. Uh, you can, I think you can still take it online. If the link's good uh, on my article, they, 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 they did an index study of the levels of narcissism between, I don't know, it was sometime in the 80s and sometimes in the 90s, and they, they determined whoever they are, that, that narcissism actually had increased. Not everybody has narcissistic personality disorder, but we are all sinful, and one of the aspects of that sinful is we love ourselves and we will do anything to increase our own pleasure and avoid pain, including manipulate people and think we're the greatest thing since sliced cheese, and that is narcissism. But um, this study also concluded that actual narcissistic, clinical narcissistic personality disorder is increasing and also that generally the population itself is getting more narcissistic. And, and that includes me, you, and everybody. Um, let's see. That might be a good place to pause or end. Right. This, this brings us, me back to here, Secularity 3. Within the eminent frame, the conditions of religious 
belief and personal faith have altered naive or innocent belief. It's, it, it becomes difficult. We, we are more like doubting Thomases than ever before. Really? If I don't see it, I'm not going to believe it. And so the, the culture will reinforce it a lot of times without that voice in the back of our head. When we hear the gospel or we read the Bible, well, is, is that true? Now the answer, just, and I guess we could all go home and just skip the, was yes, it is true. So this whole class I'm, I'm, I'm going to teach is just a way to say, and here's how we know that, that this is true. So when Nick preaches the gospel, when you read an affirmation in the prayer book or even in a hymn, how do you know that's true? Well, it is, and we'll talk about that. And one other thing, I will end with this slide. Within the new social reality, there is a suppression of truth. A drag queen story time, as well as being, you know, just awful, is a suppression of truth. You, you really, among other things, you really can't be a woman if you're a man. To think otherwise and to insist that others uh, join you in your delusion is a suppression of the truth. So this suppression of the truth manifests itself in the denial of objective truth, like it, what's true for you might not be true for me. That is in the, in the book's introduction. A willingness to ignore facts and evidence that go against one's desires or worldview. That's called confirmation bias. And it's true that everybody does it, but if you know you're doing it, you can take steps to counteract it. Confirmation bias. And the proliferation of false and even delusional beliefs and teaching, even within the church. So that's what those are the gen, that's our general cultural context, our our social reality, and this is one of the reasons why we do need apologetics. We need to understand that faith is reasonable. And let's see where we'll come next week. Right, being prepared. I'll go ahead and start with this slide next week. Uh, some of this stuff we do regularly, and it's very important. And we'll focus on. Uh, the last three, really. Don't be conformed to the spirit of this age, which means you have to know something about the spirit of this age. Know what you believe and why you believe it and be equipped to give answers to those who question you about your faith and the faith, the content of the gospel and the Christian story. So I'll end right there. Does anybody have any questions? I think i got a couple minutes left. Yeah, Joe. Uh, are there people who... That is what it must reduce to. Oh yeah, well yeah. If you're uh, if you are a secular materialist neurobiologist, you just believe that your thoughts are your brain chemistry. The firing of neurons is the transmission of neurotransmitters across synapses, gaps between your your nerves. And that does happen. So they, just start they are they well they start and end there. It's an assumption. Uh, a vast uh, and invalidated assumption. Uh, actually, it was I think back in the 18th century, and I forget who it was. Somebody said the brain secret. This was materialism goes. I mean, it goes back to uh, a guy by the name of Leucippus and Democritus, ancient philosophers. But in the Enlightenment, I forget, I'd have to look it up. One guy wrote, wrote, the brain secretes thought like the liver secretes bile. Your thought is purely a physical phenomenon. Now, how 
the, the true explanation for that, the, the arguments for, the, for that being true are what are called hand-waving. Or they, they, don't really, they don't really explain anything. They're just so stories, if you know your Rudyard Kipling. That it's like, really? Nor is there really a good Darwinian story about how consciousness and thought evolved. They're just, and there's some of that in the book. I admit I don't really dwell on it. Um, but I don't know that I read, read, have read anywhere that, that your consciousness can be reduced to patterns of electrons. But if they believe that it can be downloaded onto hardware, that's what you are in fact inferring, or no, implying. I'm inferring it. Uh, because that's all, that's all downloading anything onto a chip is, is you know, on, on a flash drive or anything. You're simply rearranging the electrons, and that's, that's a materialist conceit, the belief that matter and energy are all that exist. There's really good evidence, I won't go into it uh, right now, that, that thought is a non-physical phenomenon. That in fact, I mean, it's a pretty good argument for the existence of the soul. There's part of this that is in contact, in some sense, with transcendent reality. And Paul says uh, in, in Romans chapter 1, he doesn't talk about electrons or downloading your consciousness, but he said uh, people suppress the truth through false teaching because even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And I'm going to argue, and I agree, and I think the Apostle Paul said so, and Calvin developed it, that everybody has an innate awareness of God's existence. Um, and Calvin called that the sensus divinitatis. So the fact that you can't reduce thought to material substance is a pretty good argument for the existence of a non-material soul. Other questions? Yeah. When you think about the people who, who act in the, in the imminent frame of materialism, do you think of any particular behaviors that they uh, exhibit that are contradictory to that? So, oh, uh, there was a good one by Rust. Well, first of all, um, anytime you hear, uh, I, I don't know about now, but when I was younger, that there were singers I used to pay attention to. I think God uses means. And so, like I would listen to Cat Stevens and... Uh, James Taylor and others, uh, I just say they have more positivity. But there always seemed to be something behind that, that they recognized that there was something beyond their immediate experience. Uh, and they would actually sing about love and not just sexuality. And they would sing about meaning in life and not just you know taking Instagram pictures of your food and your fashion. So yes, there, there was an interest, Russ Douthat, who's a Roman Catholic writer for the New York Times and a pretty conservative Catholic, so I don't know how he got the job. But he was, he was at some dinner, and there were a group of social liberal elites, progressive, secular progressive, and uh, I'm probably going to get part of this wrong, but basically these were people who did not believe in God, did not believe in an afterlife, but then somebody asked him, do you believe in ghosts? And, and like half of them believed in ghosts. Well, what? No, you, you can't believe in ghosts. It's totally contradictory to your... Now, Richard Dawkins might have something to say about their 
you know, they're letting themselves be too influenced by folklore and stuff like that. But uh, horror and belief in an occult supernatural has become, for some people, a replacement for religion. And apparently some of them had dinner in New York with Russ Douthat. So, yeah, there's... Con- well, that's the thing, is the truth... Did any English lit majors... Where did, where, did, where did Shakespeare write the truth will out? Was that Macbeth? Um, it's not that truth has inherent, inherent power or existence all its own. I'm not a full-blown Platonist. But it, it's like when, when God says, uh, my word which goes out for me will not return void. Well, creation is his word too. And so you cannot change reality again to suit your wishes. And eventually the truth will assert itself. So if any culture continues to try and develop itself contrary to what reality is, it's going to crumble. Yes? It's Merchant of Venice. What? It's from Merchant of Venice. I use my fusion with Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Merchant of Venice. Which I haven't read since high school, just so you know. Yes, Kevin. By the way, it's 11.45, so I'll stay here until John Sweeney tells me I have to leave. Okay. I was just going to say, to answer the question, for a materialistic question, they really, although they can't get over the need for morality, they have no basis for morality. True. Sam Harris spends a lot of his time trying to sort of just assert, no, I can... Well, that's a good way to uh, say they will assert it. And it, it, morality, again, is contrary to a secular worldview. Uh, there can be no such thing as objective. I did not do that. There must be ghosts. There cannot, that we'll, we'll discuss that when we get the argument for God for morality. There cannot be such a thing as objective morality if there is no God. You can have personal preferences. Well, I'd rather you not beat me up and steal my stuff. But there can't be any objective morality. There's no true right and wrong. There are just personal preferences and feelings. But then again, where do feelings come from? So, anyway, they will assert that or presuppose that. Any any other questions? Now, this is all background, and I'm... I'm uh, next week, we'll start talking about, well, why... Can we be assured that our faith is reasonable? How is that going to be the case? And I think we do need to do it in face of the culture. Yes? Uh, there'll be a test. No. Um, the introduction in the book was just that. It was an introduction to sort of synopsize the chapters coming up. I touched on a little bit of it. And then uh, if, if, you, if you want to ask real hard questions and stump me, you could read the chapter on uh, the Christian faith is reasonable, true and reasonable, because that's what I'll be talking about next week. Um, Thank you very much.